0: Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew 26. We'll be starting in verse 17 this morning. Matthew 26, we'll be starting in verse 17. Matthew 26, 17 to 29 is where we'll be. Well, my wife is a planner among planners. She is the task-oriented checklist planner of the family. There is no question. And every family needs one. We've got one in her. When we go on vacation, she has plans. And then she has backup plans. And then she has backup plans for the backup plans. And then backup plans for the backup plans that back up the plans. It comes in handy sometimes, I gotta admit, as someone who is not like that at all, who would rather kind of go with the flow. It, it does come in handy. We went to Pigeon Forge area not that long ago on vacation, and it rained and had some inclement weather that kind of spoiled some of our plans, but have no fear. We had backup plans. See, if it was up to me, and, and, and I was the one left in charge of planning the vacation, we, I would have just said to the kids, well, that's it. We just can't do any things because we're just going to sit for a little while because we just don't have any plans. Our plans have been canceled but not her, we, we, had, we had backup. So we went there, and we had actually a great time, and then we, we left that, and we were like, that needs to make it into the plans next time, not the backup plan. That was actually really pretty good. But the, the point is, when, when you get into a situation like that, as much as I'm not the planner of vacations, when you do get into a situation like that, knowing that there is a plan, that someone's got a plan, that this all factors into the plan, is actually oddly comforting, isn't it? In our passage this morning, Jesus is going to bring his disciples into his final Passover meal. They're going to enjoy this last supper with him before he goes to the cross and is crucified. And in this passage, Matthew is going to reassure us time and again throughout it, this is all Part of the plan. Let's read in our passage, Matthew 26, 17 to 29. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into a, the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have read your word, we pray that you would make it real to us. Open our eyes, we may see what it is you are saying to us, our ears, we may hear in our hearts that we may obey. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At Emmanuel Baptist Church, we believe that the Bible is inerrant and infallible. The reason that we believe that is because we believe that the Bible is divinely authored. We believe that this, the Holy Spirit. Superintended through men to write these things down. Just as Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21, he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke, uh, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So we believe that these men who were prophets of old, who wrote down in the Scriptures. They wrote, and the Holy Spirit superintended the Word, so that in the original manuscripts, the Bible is inerrant and infallible. And what we believe about that is what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That means, then, that we believe that these scriptures are, one, true stories. So that when the stories are recorded for us in the scriptures, they are true. No matter how we might initially bristle at them or think, well, that's kind of outlandish. No matter how strange we might find the story, we believe that the stories are true. But second, we believe that they are stories of truth, which is just slightly different. They're not merely true recordings of events that actually took place. They are that. But they are stories of truth, meaning that even narratives, even stories about Jesus moving from one place to another with his disciples are designed to train you in righteousness. sometimes correct you in unbelief or in sin. A story about Jesus sitting down with his disciples eating a meal is designed to correct me? That seems strange. We believe that the Bible is not only composed of true stories, but stories of truth, that it's inerrant and infallible. It corrects us. It shapes us. It convicts us of sin, and it trains us in righteousness. When we study the Bible, particularly the Gospels, and we come upon a passage like this one, it doesn't suffice for us to just study it like a YouTube video. I think in your, in your text, if you have the ESV, you probably see above one of the, the, when they start getting to the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper. You, you have that in, in your text? I hate that. I absolutely I hate that little heading. That's not inspired, by the way. Somebody just wrote that. I, I can't stand that. The reason is because it doesn't really suffice when we read the Gospel of Matthew here in this account. We, we don't really take instruction. Well, this is how Jesus did it, so this is how we're going to do it. Our, our, our celebration of the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper. That's, that's not why we read this passage. That's not why it was written. It doesn't instruct us on how to do the Lord's Supper. It's making a point to us. So we don't study it like a YouTube video where we end up getting, well, this is how they did it, so this is the institution of the Lord's Supper that we should, we should take. No. We want to ask, Why? Why has Matthew included these details here? Why has he said this in this way? Why has he opted to include these quotes from people? and not opted some other quotes that we find in other Gospels? Why has he chosen this selection of details as we go through this passage? What is it he wants us to understand about Jesus and the disciples celebrating this Lord's Supper? These questions, I think, are really helpful if we want to answer the question, what is God actually teaching us here? What is he correcting us in? What is he admonishing us to? In addition to asking good questions, I think we also have to think about the context of the passage. You have to remember that the gospel writers are crafting this story to make a point to you. They're stories of truth. They're making a point to you. They're trying to lead you somewhere. They're trying to argue something, perhaps persuade you to understand something, or maybe even assure you of something. They want to convince you of something. If you look down at verse 28 in this passage, Jesus is is celebrating the the Passover with the disciples and he he holds up the cup of wine. And he says in verse 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's actually a a huge verse. It's a huge verse. It's not merely the institution of the Lord's supper. This is what you need to say before everybody eats the bread and drinks the wine. This is a huge verse. If you've been keeping your wits about you, and you've been paying attention through Matthew, and if you remember 85 years ago when we started studying the book of Matthew, you go all the way back to the very beginning, in the very first chapter, you'll remember maybe how this gospel started with an angel coming to Joseph in a dream and saying something to him, making a promise about this one who was conceived in his fiancée, Mary. Do you remember what the angel said? He said, said this, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, this is in Matthew 1, 20-21, in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And here we are, Twenty-some chapters later, Jesus is holding up the cup and says, This is my blood shed for you, which will bring about the forgiveness of sins. Matthew is convincing us, as we'll see, that this has been in the cards from the beginning. Now we read it, and we we think, Jesus is going to the cross, What? How can this be? But Matthew is telling us, no, no. This is part of the plan. We can't forget that the purpose of the book of Matthew is this. God is establishing his kingdom. He's establishing his kingdom. Who's the king? It's an easy one. This is softball. It's a church answer. Who is it? Jesus. He's establishing his kingdom, and he's putting Jesus on the throne. He's establishing Jesus as king. And what else is he doing? Well, he's, well. no kingdom is complete without citizens, right? And he's making citizens. And how is he making those citizens? By saving them from their sins. That's how he's bringing them into his kingdom. Making Jesus as king and then bringing everybody into the kingdom. Making them citizens by forgiving them of their sins. So that being the case... We can expect that from time to time, Matthew is going to renew our focus. He's going to make us aware that that is exactly what's going on. And as we draw close to the end of the book, we're going to be reminded that as we get close, that the whole reason this book is written to demonstrate how we got here. It's going to come to the fore as Jesus begins to prepare for death, and so. The time is now at hand when Jesus is going to save his people from their sins. And so we're going to keep those things in mind as we look at our text this morning. This is not merely a passage about the Lord's Supper or how it became to be an ordinance of the church, but really this is about what the church is saying when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. When we come together and we, we partake, of the Lord's Supper. This is, this is what we're saying as a body. And so you're going to be reminded throughout this whole passage of this one thing. The only main point in the whole sermon. Here it is. Your salvation is secure because of Jesus' sovereignty over the future. Your salvation is secure because of Jesus' sovereignty over the future. Throughout Jesus' journey to the cross, He's going to make a lot of predictions along the way, if you want to call them that, about what's going to happen next. And all of them prove to be true. Now, we already saw last week where he tells his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, I'm going to be delivered over, and I'm going to be crucified. And our passage this morning is not going to be much different than that, where he's going to lay out the future. We have 13 verses that we're reading this morning. And in these 13 verses... There are no less than seven predictions of the future that Jesus makes. Now, let me ask you, you think Matthew did that on purpose? Seven predictions of the future in 13 verses he gives you. And all of them prove to be true to the readers with one notable holdout, and that is the last one. So it stands to reason that Matthew is going to persuade us, he's going to convince us, that perhaps we should lend some credibility to Jesus when it comes to the last prediction. And we're going to see that. So this entire passage revolves around these seven predictions that Jesus makes. And we go from one prediction to the next. And so that's what we're going to really do this morning. But remember, Jesus is not a fortune teller. He not only knows that these things are coming... He's decreeing that these things are coming. There's a difference between those things. This is the path that he must walk down, and he knows it, and Matthew has made you aware of it since the beginning. So let's take each one of these predictions in uh, order as they come. First, Jesus knows that his time is at hand. He knows that his time is at hand. So the disciples come to him, and since it's the first day of unleavened bread, they ask him where we are going to prepare to eat the Passover. That is, after all, why we are here in Jerusalem, where are we going to eat the Passover. Now, I won't go into all the details of the connection between Jesus' Passover and the exodus in Egypt and all those kinds of things today, but um, I did go through those not two years ago In April of 2019, on a Wednesday night, we went through what the Lord's Supper is and that Seder meal that Jesus celebrates with His disciples. And so you can go back on our website, you can look under Resources and Midweek Podcast, and you can find it there. April 10th, 2019, in an episode called The Exodus, Jesus and the Passover. You can hear all about it there. We'll only touch on some things here this morning. But suffice it to say, That the disciples and Jesus are preparing to eat the Passover a little bit before everybody else does. Everybody else is going to celebrate it in Jerusalem a little bit later than they do. They celebrate what we commonly refer to as Friendsgiving. You ever have this? It's not Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is Thursday with your family. Friendsgiving is sometime before that when you have a Thanksgiving-type meal together with just your friends. So there's no arguing and stuff like that, like it normally is with your family. So the, the, the disciples and Jesus celebrate it just a little bit early on the evening, just what we would say the evening before all the Passover lambs are slain. So Jesus tells them, in order to secure the Passover room, he says, my time is at hand. Now this is a marked difference from what he's been saying up to this point. Um, he, he said in, in John 7, uh, verse 8, you go up to the feast, he's telling his family, go up to the feast, I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Meaning, if I go there, it will lead to, if I go there with you as a family, it will lead to the crucifixion, perhaps at an earlier time than it would otherwise. And so, he, his time has not fully come yet. And so, he's backed away. He's, remember, if you remember, when he casts out demons... From time to time. He tells them to be quiet. They say who he is. You're the son of God. What are you doing here? And he says be quiet. Because presumably the same reason. His time had not yet come. Don't reveal who I am. He heals people occasionally. And he will tell them. Tell no one about this. Why? Because his time had not yet fully come. But now he tells his disciples. It's time. My crucifixion is near. So he is always aware of where he is in relation to the cross. And the cross is going to happen at a particular time in human history. Symbolically, it's on the weekend of the, or the week of the Passover. That's important. But he knows that it's going to happen at a particular time. He also knows, second, he knows the parts that people will play in his crucifixion and in the preparation leading up to it. He knows the parts that people will play. In this case, he knows the part that a certain man in the city is going to play in providing a room for the disciples. He knows where that man is, and he knows that he's going to provide him a room. And we saw this just a few chapters earlier when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, and he's getting ready to ride on a donkey into town, and everybody's going to praise him and hail him as king. He tells the disciples exactly who to go to and to steal the man's colt, and his donkey, and just take him. And when he asks, where, where are you going with my colt?" he just tell them, the master needs it. So he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows what parts people are going to play. And this is not, without, not, with, not with, by accident that Matthew tells us these details. Why would he include this in the passage? It's not important what room they eat in, except that Jesus knew exactly where it was, And he knew what man was going to provide it, and that his time had come. Third, he knows one of his disciples is going to betray him. He makes that very clear. He knows one of his disciples is going to betray him. So we fast forward in the timeline to the evening that they eat. And so they're reclined at table, and they're eating the Passover meal. And Jesus, being ever the life of the party says in verse 21, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. No other way to make things a really happy occasion than to dwell on these things. One of you is going to betray me. Now, these aren't premonitions that Jesus gets. He's actually known since the beginning that one of his disciples was going to betray him. In fact, John 6, verse 70 says this, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now, this is an important verse, actually, because it it tells us a couple things. It tells us, first, that this is early in his ministry. He's known for some time that one of his disciples is going to betray him. It also tells us he chose him. He he made him a part of the twelve. I chose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil, and I know it. So Jesus is telling them that he chose them, and one of them is a devil. But I'll do you one better. Fourth, he knows Judas is the betrayer. Look at what he says in verse 23. He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray Him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Jesus trusted Judas with the money bag that funded his ministry. Do you realize that? Jesus knows that it's Judas that's going to betray him. And he entrusted the money bag to him, even knowing that Judas was helping himself to it. That he was stealing money out of the money bag. He sent Judas, along with the rest of the disciples, in Matthew 10, out, two by two, to share the good news of the kingdom, knowing that Judas was going to betray him, he did it with full knowledge that Judas was the one to deliver him over to the authorities. So the identification of the betrayer is the one who dips his hand in the dish, and it ends up being Judas. Now can you consider for just a minute what that means? Just, just think about this for just a minute. Jesus knew who was going to betray him and how, and instead of pushing his enemy away, he brought him in close. He brought him in close to himself. Can you imagine the millions of interactions that he no doubt had with Judas? And we know from this passage, Judas has no idea that Jesus knows. Now Judas knows himself that he's going to hand Jesus over for sure but Judas has no idea that Jesus knows that Judas is going to hand him in until this moment. Do you know what that means? That means that in those millions of interactions, Jesus never gave an eye roll, never gave a snide comment, never gave a sarcastic remark, never pushed him away to make him feel like he was outside. Judas had no clue That Jesus knew he was going to betray him until now. Judas never thought to himself, why does he treat me different than the rest of them? Jesus brought his enemy close. He loved him. He cared for him like a brother, knowing full well what he would do. Perhaps, maybe it's true, that Judas is in here just for you and me. I know, time and again, I've betrayed Jesus. And yet, even the gospel tells me that it's His enemies that He brought close. Even enemies like me. But pay close attention to how Jesus responds to him in verse 25. This is really important. You might want to even circle this. And you might want to write out beside it, verse 64. Because verse 64 is going to be really important. We'll get to it in a few weeks, maybe a few years, who knows. But verse 25 tells you, Judas asks, is it I, Rabbi? Not Lord, he asks him, is it I, Rabbi? But he says, you have said so. Now in verse 64, Caiaphas is going to ask Jesus, tell us, are you the Son of God? And Jesus is going to respond, you have said so. A lot of people are going to make hay about that, and they're going to say, why doesn't Jesus just say yes, like a normal human? Why does he say you have said so? He is saying yes. That's what he tells Judas back here, and that's what he tells Caiaphas there. That's his response to say, yes, absolutely, and it came from your mouth. Fifth, look at this. He knows his body is soon to be given. Not only is this time in hand, but it's going to impact his body. His body is going to be broken. Look at verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. So during the Passover meal, um, toward the end of the meal, or sorry, at the beginning of the meal, they'll break the bread, and they'll take a, a portion of it, and they'll serve that during the meal. And then toward the end of the meal, they will have a portion of the bread wrapped in linen cloth and hidden away for the end of the meal. And we're not sure exactly what it looked like in the first century, but over the years, what it's come to do, what what people have come to do with it, is actually wrap this in linen cloth and go hide it, and the kids go find it, and it becomes this big game, and they bring it out at the end of the meal and unwrap it from the linen cloth and break it for the participants there, and they finish as kind of like a dessert bread, if you you will. Now, surely you are starting to see some parallels to Jesus' own body, which is going to be hidden away and wrapped in linen cloth and brought out later in, a, in the resurrection. And so this bread that's hidden comes back to be shared in the meal with Jesus for all of his disciples to partake in. And Jesus says, this is my body. Now surely he's using this, and it's very convenient that this would be very symbolic of the body that he has that's going to be hidden away in a tomb and brought out later in the resurrection. It's going to be given for all of his disciples to partake him. That his resurrection is going to become their resurrection. And you might be inclined to think that maybe this Passover celebration was intended from the beginning to be a symbol of the resurrection. Possibly, But Jesus knows that the cross is coming. He knows that his body is going to be broken for them as the bread that they're about to eat is broken. And he knows his body is going to be hidden away and it's going to return for them. But look at the sixth thing he knows, which is part of this. He knows his blood is going to be poured out and our sins forgiven. Look at verse 27. He took a cup, when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, throughout the Passover meal, lots of wine is passed around. But there are four glasses of wine that are seated in front of, or that are put on the table in front of every participant. And those four glasses of wine move the family through the Passover celebration. And Jesus, as the officiant of the meal, is responsible for moving the people through these four glasses of wine. And with each glass of wine, there is a a, an I will statement. From Exodus 6, 6 to 7, that is recited. Each glass of wine corresponds to an I will statement out of that passage. So, following the breaking of the hidden bread, Jesus, who is the host, takes one of these glasses. And we know from its position in the meal that this is the third glass of wine that he's lifting up. That third glass of wine corresponds to the third I will statement in Exodus 6, 6, which says this, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And it's at this point that Jesus tells his disciples, this is my blood. This is what my blood is going to do for you. It's poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. That's what he says here. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, you might be thinking, why does he say many? I don't want him to say many. I want him to say all. This is my blood poured out for all, for the forgiveness of sins. But why does He say many? Well, you have a similar problem when you go back to the beginning of the book of Matthew. In that same verse we read earlier in Matthew one twenty one, She will bear a son, and you will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Why does it say that? The many here in... 26 are His people in the beginning. And then throughout, He tells you all kinds of things that allude to this very same reality. He calls the Pharisees children of the devil. He tells parables where the wheat, the children of the kingdom, are going to grow up next to children of Satan whom He sowed in the field. The wheat and the tares are going to grow up together. And He says here, His blood is going to be given as a ransom for many. Certainly, we've just seen Judas, who in some Gospels is referred to as the son of perdition, son of hell, child of the devil. Jesus will, throughout the Gospel, look at some people and say, you are of your father, the devil. Meaning that there is no forgiveness for them. A sad and shocking reality, but it's there in black and white. What do we make of it? We accept it as true and move on. But look at the seventh thing. Jesus knows his death is not the end. Jesus knows his death is not the end. Look at verse 29. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Now I say this every time we partake in the Lord's Supper. I bring out this very thing because it blows my mind every time I read it that Jesus is fasting from wine until we are all able to join him at the table. Do you realize that's what he's saying? When he says, with you in my Father's kingdom, he's not talking about just after the resurrection. The image here is of the messianic banquet. It's what we refer to it as, the messianic banquet, or the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's that moment, and I want you to imagine it for just a second. That moment at the end of human history when it's all over. It's all done. The saints who have died, whose souls have gone to be with the Lord Jesus, comes and brings them back. Their souls are reunited with resurrected bodies. Those who are alive when Christ return are transformed in the twinkling of an eye. All of us, the curse from the earth is removed, sickness is over, evil and hostility is over war over sin and struggles with sin all over we are dwelling under the new heavens on the new earth with christ as our lord never having to think about sin ever again and the nations are going to stream to the throne of christ They're going to celebrate the victory that he has won for his people. And that will be the next time that he takes of the cup. Can you imagine that? Now think about that promise that he makes. He says, that's going to happen and you're going to be a part of it. That's going to happen And you're going to be here. I'm going to be there. I'm going to be officiating the celebration. I'm going to be distributing the elements. And you are going to be there. Can you think about how asinine that is for just a second? Here is a man who is about to die. He's going to go hang on a cross. And the most powerful military that's ever been in human history up until this point. Until probably the American military is going to put him there. And here he is, so brazen as to say, no, it's not over. I'm going to win. My kingdom is going to be established. The citizens are going to be established. And you're going to be there. This is a moment that's still in our future. And here's Jesus saying, it is going to happen that seems preposterous he's making promises as if he's going to be alive to see it and we know he's going to be hanging on that cross but this is a promise that we as a church body are still clinging to every time we celebrate the lord's supper we cling to that promise it is the very reason why we celebrate it There is a promise of resurrection that we are awaiting. We're clinging to this very thing. You know that this is actually the point of salvation. Salvation is not merely forgiveness of sin. It is that, but it's not only that. It's not merely reconciliation with the God of the universe. It is that, but it's not merely that. Salvation that we're looking toward is a real, physical reality where our resurrected bodies, perfected and glorified, will live in the kingdom of Christ on a new and restored, redeemed earth. That is salvation. Heaven is not our home. We're only passing through that. The end is the new earth we'll dwell with him forever. And I, much like the rest of you, struggle day in and day out to believe it. Can we just own that for a second? That it's hard for us to wrap our minds around? It's difficult for us to believe it? You know what, though? I think the biblical writers suspected that we might have some difficulty believing this. Just think about it for just a second. Matthew is writing this gospel for what purpose? So that you might believe. So that you might have faith that Christ has really established His kingdom, that He is really King, and that your citizenship, by His grace, through faith, might be established firmly in His kingdom. Matthew's wanting to convince you of that. And that requires trust in Christ. It requires an immense amount of trust. And so this promise that he's making about fasting from the fruit of the vine, from wine, until that day comes, until we all come together in his Father's kingdom, is going to take an immense amount of trust on your part. And you and I, we're going to come in here and we're going to come to the Bible and we're going to say, yep, yeah, how can I trust that, that he's really saved me? How can I believe that that's true? To which Matthew says in this passage, well, first, he knew that his time was at hand. And it was. Second, he, he knew Where we were going to meet for Passover, and we went, and it was exactly as he told us. He knew that he was going to be betrayed. This was all part of the plan. He knew who was going to betray him, and he had selected him for that task, and he's going to judge him for it. He knew what we were going to do to his body. He knew what the Roman soldiers were going to do. They were going to break him. In fact, go back thousands of years, God instituted the Passover to remind us of that. He knew that his his blood was going to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. He put Exodus 6-6 right there. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. To demonstrate what his blood was going to do for us. Thousands of years before it was ever required. Dear reader, all of these things came to pass. Every last one of them. How sure can you be about your salvation? because Jesus is sovereign over the future, you can be really sure. Now what does that actually mean to us? You need to understand that you are being conformed into the image of Christ, and Jesus is bringing about your salvation in the kingdom. He is actively working toward that end. And the fact that God killed His own son to make it true means He will stop at nothing to make sure you are gathered around His throne when His kingdom is consummated. He is actively doing that on your behalf. Do you understand that? So what that means then is your life is not spinning out of control. It's never spinning out of control. Your life is in the palm of his hand. Everything that's ever been a part of your life, he is working to bring about that end for you, salvation. But there are times where the crutches that we lean on are removed from us and they hurt. And as we fall to the ground, we crack our head on the ground, it hurts. And as we struggle in this body of flesh with sin, it hurts, it's painful. And yet, we have a promise. It is bringing about your salvation in Christ. But I need that crutch. No, you don't. You need me. But I want that thing. No, you don't. You need me. But that hurts. It's supposed to. It's a reminder you need me. it also reminds us that he doesn't merely know the future. He decrees it. This should bring great comfort to you. For many of us, it doesn't. It brings about arguments and bitterness. But it is very clear in the Scripture, he not only knows the future, he knows it because he decreed it. If he didn't decree it, How could he possibly promise that all things bend according to his will? If he didn't decree it, it wouldn't bend toward him, it would bend away. If you leave some kids alone in a room, do they bend toward justice and righteousness? Come on now. Do you ever hear your oldest in there going, Now guys, we should be just and fair with everyone. I don't. I hear, he hit me. It's probably the phrase I hear the most in our house. If we're left alone, things don't bend toward him. They bend away. The fact that we're bending toward him is proof that he works all things in accordance to the counsel of his own will. That's why he can promise us, by the way, in Romans 8, 28 to 30, and we know... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. How can he promise that they work together for good? Because the salvation as we're gathered around the throne of Christ is coming about. And he's making it happen. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Well, glorified, that happens in the future. No, not to Jesus. Not to Paul. It's as good as done. But Then he can also say in Ephesians 1, 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. But it also tells us that our fear over the future or maybe even our distress over the present is because we have exchanged an omnipotent God for an impotent God. God help us. So so often we come together together In a room to sing praises to His name. And what is in our head is a God who is just befuddled by your life. And He's confused about your future. And He's sitting back going, well, what do I do now? How dare we come in here as a body thinking that about God? It's blasphemous. It's an idol that we have created after our own image. Well, how would I respond to people who sin like me? I would be confused and perplexed so we think God must be as well. It's hogwash. He knows and he decrees everything. Everything in your life is his plan to bring about your salvation. Christian, don't get it twisted. Every single thing. Cancer? Yeah. What about those times where it just ran away, lost in sin? What did it do for the prodigal son? What did it do for him? It brought him humbly back to the Father. It's God's intention. Bringing you back to himself. And we get lost in philosophy. Well, if, if he predestines all these things and he plans all these things, then what about all this stuff and how does this work with that? Well, I can't reconcile those things, so God must be subservient to my philosophy. Why don't we instead read the Bible and make our philosophy subservient to the Scriptures? This is who God says he is. Let's accept it. But here's the reality. Don't just accept it. It's meant to bring to you great comfort. Why? Because your life isn't spinning out of control. It's part of a plan. It's his plan. I don't always understand it. I don't always know why. I don't always get the answers as to why. Oh, but man, am I comforted that it's still true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we who have been brought into this place, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, by an outstretched arm, by the blood of Christ, may we celebrate the salvation that we have, which is strictly by your grace and mercy. I pray for the hearts of those who may be in this room. who currently stand right now as enemies of the cross, you knew this day long before you made them out of dust. You knew that they would be here. You knew that they would hear this. I pray, Father, that you would open their minds and their hearts, their eyes to see You who stands behind it all, in it all, and through it all. Who conforms all things according to the purpose of your will. And I pray that that understanding of who you are and what you have done for us in Christ would cause them even now to bow their knee before you. And confess their sin and proclaim Christ as Lord. In Jesus' name.